Jack Spear go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is episode 1219 of the Survival Podcast. Yesterday was a TSP Classic episode. There will be a bunch of those coming next week. But that is not what I have for you today. I have a brand new, fresh off the, uh, off the Audacity Recorder episode for you with, uh, John Pugliano, who was on before about investing. And he got tons of questions from the audience after that first appearance. And he came, he's coming back on today with rules for the beginning investor. There's about nine of them. We'll talk about those in just a minute with John. Before that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you are a knife maker, a master bladesmith, a guy that knows his stuff when it comes to knives, guess what? KnifeKits.com is the place for you. You can find the most exotic, coolest materials, and they've got everything. Damascus steel. Horn bone, uh, horn bone, yeah, very, you know, exotic horn and bone materials, uh, micarta, you name it, most exotic woods you can think of. They've got everything. But what if you're like, oh, I'd like to make knives, but I really don't know how, and I don't know where to start. Hey, knifekits.com is the place for you. That's the kits part. If you want to learn how to make knives and you're just getting started out, you can get a kit. You can get some custom material for uh, making your handles. And if you don't really know what you're doing, you can get a book or a DVD that will help you finish out that knife. If you still need help, pick up the phone and call them. They'll help you figure out what you need to get started in the awesome world of making your own knives. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Backwoods Home Magazine was the first magazine I ever subscribed to as an adult where like, I got my own, like, I'm going to spend my own money to buy this. And it was right after I got out of the Army. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd started my journey to, uh, to kind of corporatism. At that point, you know, you got to have a successful life was my thought. And I got it came down to Dallas, Fort Worth out of rural Pennsylvania and decided this is where I would build things. And, uh, you know, immediately realized what I'd left behind and how much I missed it. And I found Backwoods Home Magazine on the shelves of a local bookstore. And at the beginning of that, I was like dead broke. So I would go up there and buy a coffee and sit there all day and read books. And uh, that was one of the things I would read while I was there. Once I kind of got on my feet, I subscribed to them. And that was back in 1993. Today, being able to work with their staff is awesome for me. They're just great people. If you want everything that Mother Earth promises, or Mother Earth News promises, and you want everything that a survival magazine promises, you want them combined, and then you want them done with a libertarian flair, then Backwoods Home Magazine is a place for you. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, best way to visit Backwoods Home and KnifeKits.com, go to the Survival Podcast. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin, and then that way you know you're dealing with the actual sponsor of this show. Let me say this as well. Uh, Backwoods Home and Knife Kits both do special programs for our members of the Support Brigade. If you go uh, to your Support Brigade membership area, you'll find the discount codes so that you can get the best deal with both of those companies. So do also consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts from KnifeKits.com, Backwoods Home Magazine, and plenty of other awesome folks as well. Uh, check that out. If you want to join, you'll support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, which is about 50 bucks a year. Military aid, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, 
paramedics, and firefighters, well, you guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service, and I'll send you that discount code to save you even more money. Also, make sure you get on over to 13skills.com. We've added some really cool features to that site. There's plenty of time left in this year to improve or add skills to your skill set. 13skills.com is a place to connect with others, track your skills, and learn from each other. 13skills.com. All right, um, before we get uh, John on, let's go ahead and take it to look at the year of the episode, in this case the year... 1219. What was going on at 1219? Well, remember yesterday we said that the Fifth Crusade went to Egypt and had surrounded uh, Dumantia. And uh, Dumantia falls to the Crusades after siege, so the Crusaders successfully take a major city in Egypt. And then St. Francis of Assisi introduces Catholicism into Egypt during the Fifth Crusade. Because remember, the Fifth Crusade was not about spreading evangelism. It was, it was just about opening the The pathway for the... Oh, wait, that's not how it worked out in Egypt. Anyway, um, so you see the, the not just the government, but the church extending its influence uh, throughout northern Africa. And remember how much power the Pope had at the time. The Pope had more power in many instances than kings and queens at this time in history. So you're looking at more of a militant movement of the church than you are a evangelical move of the church. Um, additionally, the next thing that we're going to talk about is something kind of interesting, to me anyway. The windmill is first introduced to China with travels uh, to tra Transoxia, Trans Transoxiana, which doesn't exist anymore. It's uh, Transoxiana is right about where modern-day Uzbekistan is, which is pretty close to Iran. So the Chinese have begun traveling into... Uzbe you know, modern-day Uzbekistan, and are bringing technology back to China. Of course, who's in charge of China right now? The Mongol hordes, the great Genghis Khan and his family and his generals have now ventured into Uzbekistan and brought technology home. What do you think they are planning to do next? Play tiddlywinks or continue to advance while they're ignored? Another thing that happened is Guleme de Gasur's was born. He was born. Who is this man? He is the original first grand master of the Priory of Zion. If you believe that, if you believe the Priory existed, it is known today as a fictional organization. For me, whether or not the Priory ever existed, uh, my jury is out on that one. Does it still exist today? I say no. But I think it's certainly possible there is some historical evidence for the Priory. For those that have never heard of the Priory of Sion, it was a big part of the uh, Dan Brown novel, The Da Vinci Code, which was, to me, it was a great book. I know it upset a lot of people because you read fiction and take it as some kind of attack on what you believe. But I read the book as a fiction you know, thing with a bunch of historical symbolism blended into it, which is how I think it was uh, written. And it was really, really interesting. So to me, at least, it's interesting that in 1219, the supposed, anyway, original Grandmaster of the Priory of Zion, Guilherme de Gassurs, was born. And again, he was born in the year 1219, and a little factoid here. Uh, this guy stuck around for a while. 
He died in the year 1307. Folks, that would put his age at 88. Please remember that every time you're told the nonsense about how modern medicine has human beings living longer than ever before. It's all about removing the zeros. It's all about removing the, the children that never survived childbirth and women that died in childbirth and stupid things like doctors not knowing to wash their hands when they messed around with injuries. Other than that, pretty much even in the past, as long as you were well-fed and had clean water, if you made it you know, out of your childhood, you were just as likely to live into your 70s or 80s as you are today. Not that there's not some life-saving things we can do, especially in the worlds of cancer and things like that, but... You know, people had a lot less coronary heart disease and cancer in the day, I'm just saying. It's not so much that medicine has allowed us to live longer, it's that medicine has allowed us to live longer in spite of the abuses that we have on our bodies in modern society. Not everything you're told is the truth. A simple walk through history and the look at the ages of many of the individuals who lived in those times can tell you that is the case. If you start doing things like taking, again, out deaths at childbirth, childhood deaths, Deaths due to uh, murders and battle. The picture becomes even more clear. Anyway, with that, I do have the housekeeping and the history segment wrapped up. And with that, I want to say, hey, John, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Jack, thanks. It's always great to be on TSB. I enjoy, uh, enjoy the episodes, listening to them, and it's a lot of fun to be on. Hey, you are the uh, founder of something called Investable Wealth, which I like wealth to be investable. That sounds like a good thing. Um, I was really impressed with you the last time we had you on. Obviously, if I wasn't, you you wouldn't be here now. Uh, but many people may not have heard that show. So could you give people just a little bit about your background and uh, how you've gotten into what you're doing today? Sure. Um, well, as far as investing, uh, I started out as an in individual investor, just a you know, private investor with my own money uh, about uh, 26, 27 years ago. I was actually still in college at the time, had a couple thousand dollars, had always been very interested in investing, and opened up a Charles Schwab account and started with it. And uh, that was back in the old days when you, you had to use a uh, – the modern way to do it then was to have a, a, dial, a, a push tone phone, you know, where you could actually uh, make your own trades by pushing the tones on your telephone. And uh, that was that was the revolution of the day. And I think it cost something like $110 to make a transaction where, you know, today it's under $10. Um, but anyways, I got started investing that way and uh, did, did a couple stents in the military, worked at some, some major corporations over the years. But my passion was always in investing, and I found that I could make more money at investing than, than pretty much anything else. And uh, now I'm, I'm uh, in my early 50s, and I got to the point in my life where I had enough uh, where I thought wisdom and skill and money that I could go out on my own. And I did, as you mentioned, uh, founded a company called Investable Wealth or an advisory firm. And um, I, I help manage other people's money now. Well, and what do you mean by you help manage other people's money? I mean, how does that work? Is it like your Edward Jones guy that says, uh, just sign over to this and I'll take over all your accounts and uh, somebody somewhere will tell me what to tell you to buy next? Well, a, li a little bit like that. They do, they do sign over whatever money they want me to manage. I have discretion over their accounts. Uh, but I'm totally independent. I'm a fee only. I'm a registered in my, my firm is a registered investment advisor company. And um, uh, totally, totally independent. I don't. I'm not affiliated with anybody. Uh, so I, I trade other people's accounts the way I've learned to trade my own over the years. I don't sell any products. I'm a, I'm a fee only. I charge a flat one percent fee, um, which is which is one percent annually. It's done over you know build 12 times a year. Um, so if people don't like me, they can 
fire me and go hire somebody else. Um, but the way it's set up is uh, based on what people's expectations are. I can put them into stocks or exchange-traded funds. Uh, we do it all through a discount broker, so there's low transaction fees. And I, I, don't, I don't sell annuities. I don't sell insurance. I don't do any of that stuff. I offer, uh, I offer my advice and, and actively manage their accounts for them. And just so people understand, when you say sign over, it's not really signing over. It's you're, you're given the ability to make transactions on their behalf. And I would imagine you don't, like, call me up and go, hey, Jack, guess what? I just got you into this great new stock. You call me up and go, Jack, I think you should look at this stock. And with my approval, then you make the, the transaction. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, they don't actually sign their money over to me. I have no custody of anyone's money. It's not a Bernie Madoff thing where I, I have your money and I can run off with it. You would, you would have your money in a... Um, um, you know, in a, in a discount brokerage account, and you would authorize me to make trades in your account through through that brokerage company. And, gotcha. and I would actively manage that, just like you would call in and make your own trades. I would do that on my platform. Um, I, I would point out, though, I do I do require my clients to give me discretionary trading, and what that means is is that I don't actually have to get their recommendation to buy or sell a stock. Um, okay. But I do know what they um, what their objectives are, and if they tell me. Whatever. Either they have social reasons for not wanting to invest in a, you know, maybe they don't smoke and they don't want to buy Philip Morris stock or sure. something like that or, or whatever. They're just they're risk averse and they don't want to be in a technology stock. I would obviously honor those requests, but in terms of the market moves so fast, um, for me to be the best service to my clients, I have them give me discretionary authority and then I know what they want. I can go in and buy it or sell it at any time and you know, do my best to make the money. I think in some ways it's more important that you have that discretionary ability to sell than to buy um, because, you know, while you're getting a hold of me so I can say, yeah, liquidate this pig, it could be cratering. Absolutely, and that's one of the things we'll talk about today as we talk about rules for the beginning investor. It's more important to know your sell point than your buy point. That, that's something we'll talk yeah. about. Definitely, and I, I think that that's well. I'm not going to go there because we'll we'll get there, and I don't want to jump ahead of the kind of the outline we have laid out. So let's start out with kind of your first rule, and this is why you're a financial advisor that gets to come on the Survival Podcast at all. Your first rule is get your preps in order. Uh, it's it's not diversify your account based on your age. It's get your preps in order. Why do you say that? Yeah, let me do that. Hey, before we do it, let's do the legal disclaimer. Um, you and I are, are not offering specific uh, investment advice or recommendations to anybody. We're just having a friendly conversation. We're talking about educational things, and this is for for you know educational purposes only. We're not making any personal personal recommendations. Um, something else I'll say about too. While we're talking today, we're going to talk about one easy method for someone that's just beginning in investing and there's a there's a million different ways to make money in the stock market right we're not going to cover all million we're going to talk about one method it's just like martial arts you know there's taekwondo there's kung fu there's karate they, they all work if you know how to do them and so we're you know we're going to limit this to a, a fairly elementary conversation but it's still important to know even for the you know with me I've been doing this for a lot of years I always still pay attention to the elementary details because I always learn something else. I always go back and question my own methods, and I think it's important other people do that. And it also applies beyond investing. What we're going to talk about today are things about wisdom, things about knowing what's going on around you, being you know, situationally aware of what's happening, and making wise, logical decisions. And that's the same whether you're doing permaculture or investing or you know, 
buying a used car, right? Those are all the same things. You, you want to use those same methods. So um, as far as yeah, get, getting started, get your preps in order. You know, uh, a lot of people come to me and I'll, and I'll hear that thing, whether they have $1,000 to invest or a million dollars to invest, they all want to know about what they should invest in. And the important thing is, is, is take a step back and, and say, you know, do you even need to be investing at all? And as far as your, your listeners, uh, they're interested in prepping, and that's exactly where they need to be. Uh, do you have, you know, food and water storage? Can you make it for the first 72 hours before FEMA gets there? Um, do you have a year supply? You know, it depends on where you're at in life and what situation you're in, but you should have some kind of self-sufficiency, as you talk about on your podcast all the time. You know, that includes food, water, fuel, energy storage. Um, hey, b- by the way, I loved your podcast the other day on uh, on grilling, and and you know, grilling's a perfect example. You got a you got a, a a couple canisters of propane and some bags of charcoal. You can cook for a long time with that. And, you know, you should look at having those those prepping things in order. Um, emergency fund. You know, guys like Dave Ramsey, they're always talking about an emergency fund. If all you have is $1,000, you don't need to be investing. You need to be putting that in your emergency fund. Right? You know, I hear it all the time. Jack, I have $2,000 uh, to invest, and uh, I'm thinking about buying some silver. What do you think I should do? And my response to that usually is, is this all the money that you have? Because um, sometimes people say that, it's really not. What they're saying is, I have this discretionary investment, and they haven't given you enough information. And my response usually is, look, dude, I don't freaking give financial advice at all, but I can tell you that I think that right now, if I was in the silver market, I would buy silver, or I wouldn't buy silver, or I would hold silver. I can give you my opinion of where the silver price point is, but when somebody is asking that question, like I say I don't give financial advice, but when I do is when they go, yeah, that's, that's all the money I have to invest. I don't have any 401k. I don't have, that's my savings account. I'm like, you need to leave it in cash right now and worry about getting your life squared away. Because even if you get a 50% return on, on $2,000, well, you're up to $3,000. You're, you're taking a risk equivalent to Vegas, and you don't even have a Vegas-like payout on the other side of it. That's right. And, and, with, and with the emergency fund, you know, it's not really you're thinking about in a dollar term, but you're thinking about in your expenses. Do I have a month's supply saved up? Do I have three months' supply of my uh, you know, my monthly expenses. Do I have six months or a year? Again, it depends where you're at in your, in your life, what your lifestyle is, what your income levels are. But um, I don't think it's extreme at all for someone to have a year supply, uh, a, a year of expenses sitting around in a, in a savings account collecting no interest because it's their emergency fund. It's, it's like insurance. The, the money you're, you're missing by not participating in the market is, is the insurance premium you're paying for having that money available should you lose your job, should you become sick, uh, whatever. You know, you have an emergency, your house burns down, you've got that cash there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and the other things, too, with that, you mentioned, you mentioned silver. You know, precious metals, dude, you want to put 5% of your money into, into precious metals or something. That's, I know a lot of people that do that. That's, that's a viable thing. And, and your life insurance. If you have dependents, someone that depends on you, you need to make sure your life insurance policy is, is uh, well-funded before you put anything in the stock market. Absolutely. And, you know, what I wanted to kind of follow that up with is how did you end up with the prepping mentality? I was fortunate. I, I got very good genes from my father and my mother. They were, <laughs> they, they were both extreme savers. Um, uh, my father actually tragically – one reason I'm a big believer in life insurance, again, I don't sell life insurance. I'm a big term guy. That's all I've ever owned. Uh, you know, go Google it. Buy the cheapest polish you can online. Uh, but – 
I'm a big believer in insurance. My father died when he was 32 years old. He was getting up to go to work, bent over time his work boots, and, and had an aneurysm and, and basically fell over dead. Um, left my mother as a widow at 30 years old. So fortunately, they were excellent savers. Um, uh, she raised me with that mentality. My grandparents uh, were in that Depression era people. I had a grandfather that was a coal miner, one that was a railroader. They, uh, they always had a garden. They canned. They were very self-sufficient. My, I'll tell you, my, my, my father's father was an Italian immigrant. He came to this country at multiple times, but the first time he came over, he was 16 years old. He lived to be 96 years old. He was the smartest man I've ever met, and he only had a third, uh, third grade education. But he could, he, you know, we talk about prepping, and I wish I'd written everything down that he had ever told me, but he could do everything from make wine to butcher a goat to raise bees to mine, mine coal in his, in his basement. I mean, he was a renaissance man. He could do it all. And just fascinating, fascinating man. So once we get past um, putting our preps in order, um, you say then we need to look at research and education, which I think is critical because so many people want the shortcut to everything. I've got to invest now. And if you feel that way, you probably shouldn't be investing now. And I'm big on increasing your financial vocabulary. I don't think one has to be well astute at exactly the intricacies of trading options to maybe be able to work with somebody like you and, and, and put some options into their portfolio for just one example. But I think they need to at least have a fundamental understanding of the financial vocabulary and what's possible uh, I liken it to the way that I run businesses and how I've built websites before. I don't know how to make PHP do certain things with a website, but I know that it can be done, so I know how to talk to an expert and get them to do those things. And when they're bullshitting me, I know. And when they're telling me the truth about it not being a good idea, I can tell that. And when they're telling me, yeah, we can do that, I also know that, hey, this guy's confident he can get this done. That's kind of how I see investing, working with a professional. You still need that research, the knowledge, and the financial vocabulary to be effective with that. Yes, and like we talked about this, we're talking about investing, but the things we talk about apply to everything. If you want to go out and start doing something with permaculture, before you do it, you should have a knowledge of it. So we want to start with you know, that research and education um, if, as I've heard you say many times, and I always tell people, no one cares about you, your money more than you care about your money. It's like your children. No one's going to love your children the way you're going to love your children. Um, so you need to take responsibility for your money. Obviously, I do this for a living. People hand their money over to me to make those decisions. But part of, part of what I do with them is educate them and let them know why I'm doing what I'm doing so they can be aware of it. You should always be aware of what's happening with your money, even if you don't want to do it yourself. You know, Jack, you and I are both military mechanics. Um, and you're probably a lot like me. I know how to change oil. I haven't changed my own oil in a long time. Right? No. Right? Just, no, I can't afford to change my oil. <laughs> that's right. The time that it takes me to do that is so much better spent doing other things, and by the time I buy the oil and the filters, I'm actually paying like five bucks for somebody to do it that fast. Exactly. And, and, and I can't afford to take the time to do that unless I set up an oil change shop the way they have it with a hole in the floor out in my in my shop and I don't want to do that. I have other reasons I might put a hole in the ground than changing oil. Right. I, I wait for a coupon to come in the mail. I take it down at Jiffy Lube or whoever let them do it. I'm not I, I don't get dirty anymore. And that's the same way with the investing is you know my clients that engage me, they don't do it because they don't know how to do it themselves. They just do it because they, they don't want to. They don't have the time. They don't stay on it every day like I do. I like getting greasy when it comes to investing, you know, not with getting under the engine anymore. But, um, but you should still be aware of it. And that's some of the things we'll talk about. So it, it, it's getting out and knowing things. I have a couple 
after my last uh, appearance in your podcast, I got a bunch of questions where people asked me, you know, how do I get started? And I, I gave people some recommendations on books and things. And I, I've kind of stepped back and I thought about that a little bit more. And, and I'm going to go even more basic than things I've told other people. And j- just to recommend a couple books, and we'll talk about some books and some websites and things. Before I say any of that, remember, everything has an agenda. Everything's written with a bias, okay, whether it comes from a government or from a website, uh, someone trying to buy or sell you something. That doesn't mean you disregard the information. It just means you, you read between the lines. You know what's going on with it, right? So you see the sales part of it. You ignore that. You just read it for the content. So, so don't discount something just because it's a sales pitch. But having said that, if, if all it is is a sales pitch or if someone's pitching you something that's get-rich-quick or you know they have a secret stock that no one else knows about, then you just need to very bypass that one, right? Because you know, you know what they're going to tell you is not reliable. You know, you just made me think of something that's become one of my favorite little resources. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Stock Gumshoe. Yes, yes. And about once a week, I get a email from uh, Porter Stansberry's group of sleaze uh, telling me about some wonderful thing that if I don't invest in by the end of the day, I will die, and my children will be uh, you know, sodomized by Mongols or something. But if I do this and get their secret information, I'll be as rich as the president or something like that. And just because it always, always kind of wonder what they're talking about, I just like use Stock Gumshoe, and the guy basically makes a living decrypting these cryptic things that they try to sell you. And I, I, I put that out mainly not because I think that the investment advice those people give is good, because it, it takes away the temptation that that person, you know, reading that email has to fall for uh, the, the fact that this person has this insider special information. And it kind of shows really quickly how non-insider it is, because You've got this blogger that just goes, okay, based on the characteristics of what they describe, this is what it is. That's right. And it's always like, big deal. Like, if I would have paid for that, I'd be so pissed. Yep. You know, Google (laughs) Google is your friend. Google can tell you an awful lot, um, and people should be skeptical. Um, There's a guy that I, a finance guy that's out there, has been around for years. I'm not going to say his name, but people probably know when I talk about this. He's talked about the demographic shift and the demographic problems are going to affect the economy. I think his books, and I think a lot of what he says is right on and great. But if you sign up for his, you know, free emails or whatever, you're bombarded with these, you know, the get-rich-quick things or this one stock nobody else knows about. And it just, to me, it just degrades his credibility on the other issues. And so just to make a quick buck, I don't know why they do that. It's beyond me. Yeah, yeah. So where do you where do you say that people should like? What are some good research and education yeah, resources? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Like I say, I kind of I've rethought about this after, after I've given people ideas. And one book I'm going to tell people right away. People are going to say, "Oh, that's so old school. That's so you know 1980s kind of stuff." But One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch is really a good book, and and it is dated. Even if you get the I think the most recent edition came out maybe in 2000 or something. It's a dated book, but one advantage to reading a dated book is that you've got 2020 hindsight now. So when the guy's telling you his theories and why he thinks you know, Microsoft is going to take off or something, well, if he's saying that back in the early 80s, that's, you know, he was pretty insightful. And so you can, you can kind of see where he was wrong and where he was right. The other reason I like Peter Lynch is, although he's a big Wall Street guy, he does give you a lot of um, common man insider perspective, and he tells you a lot about the way those guys think. And, and, and when I talk about those guys, it's the Wall Street people the institutional traders, they're the ones that make the markets, they're the ones that drive the markets, and you can say what you want about them, but, but that's the market. And if, the more you know about it, right, so anyway, keep, keep, your, uh, keep your 
keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You want to know how they think. And so, so reading Peter Lynch, particularly that first book, One Up on Wall Street, is probably the best book he ever wrote. Excellent. Any other resources you'd really recommend? Yeah, a couple others. Um, Bill O'Neill, William O'Neill, the founder of um, Investors Business Daily, talk about his website in a minute. But he, he's got a lot of great books out there. One book I really like, it's, eleme- it's, it, it's fairly elementary, but it's, it's great for the beginning investor, 24 Essential Lessons for in- Investment Success. Um, again, you read it, there's a lot of advertisement in it about, hey, you know, why you should buy, buy Investors Business Daily. You know, you can ignore all that if you want to, or you can go get a subscription. I don't care what you do with Investors Business Daily, but Bill O'Neill is a, he's a, he's a, he's a trading genius. He's been around for decades. What he said has always been right on. Those 24 essential lessons he has, they're easy to read. They're, they make a, a lot of sense. They'll really help you navigate things. And I, I would highly recommend that as well as other Bill's books. Um, for, for people who want to get more in-depth in things, Wiley Trading Series, uh, Joe Wiley Publishing, they do all kinds of, this is for the more advanced person, but I mean, they do all the, from the classic people to the new fad kind of investing. That's all there. What I always recommend to people is go to the library. Go to a good old-fashioned library where you can walk the aisles and see the books up there. Uh, go to the investments, investment section. See what appeals to you. See see what's written in the, the um, language you speak and, and what your understanding is. You don't have to buy every book. You don't have to read every book cover to cover. Maybe there's one chapter. Maybe there's one paragraph in that book that makes sense to you. Glean what you can and, and you know, don't use the rest of it. But I wouldn't go out and buy about a lot of books. I'd start out in the library. I'd see what you like, what makes sense to you, and then go buy them later on. I'd say another thing that I advise people to do is when you're watching things like Fox or CNN or whatever, especially the financial segments, or if you put on Bloomberg and you're watching things, or you're even like Russia Today gets in a lot into economics and stuff, whenever you're listening to and hearing about an economic issue and you hear any word you do not understand, Pick up your iPhone and look it up immediately. Make a note to yourself to do it later. Send yourself a text message. Write it down. Do something and learn what that word means. I, I think that the, the very, you know, there's a, I don't know if this is who you're talking about, but Kiyosaki uh, is a guy who I love and hate because I think his books are very beneficial if you don't just take his word on everything and, and don't believe his narrative story as being factual um, and just look at some of the advice he gives. And one is increasing the, the financial IQ. Just the, the knowledge of words and vocabulary, I think it's one of the biggest things that the American people as a whole are ignorant to today. And because of that, they're subject to somebody that sounds smart because they use words that they don't understand. And that's not just true in finance, but boy, is it true in finance. And I think if you just learned a, a new financial word every day for a year, uh, the amount of uh, mental acuity and power that gives you, uh, if nothing else, just as a bullshit detector, is is pretty impressive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and he isn't the one I'm talking about. He's more on the real estate side of things. But yeah. he's another one. I agree with some of the things he says, but he goes overboard. Um, Inve- Investopedia is another website. Um, I think that's what it's called. They've got exactly what you're talking about. If you need to know what selling short means or you need to know what uh, an annuity is, go to Investopedia gives you really good detailed information about things. Um, some other websites and very common ones, you know, things like Yahoo Finance, CNN Money. Again, there's, there's a million sites out there. It depends on what you like. It depends on what your personality is. Find which one's good for you. Um, I guarantee if you go to a place like Yahoo Finance, there is more information there than Warren Buffett ever had before he made his first, you know, $100 billion. 
there's there's just more information than you're ever going to need to know or or uh, understand just just on on that. So you know, people get all wrapped up in paralysis and analysis and all that. The information's there. Look at basic charts. Look at look at financial news. Um, you know, key statistics. It, it's all there. There's there's other great sites like Finviz, Big Charts, Stock Charts. Uh, all depends on what you want to do. I'll, I'll put in one more plug for um, Investors Business Daily. I talked about Bill O'Neill, William O'Neill's book. Um, Investors Business Daily. Their website is investors.com. If you, if people go to their IBD University and their IBD TV, you'll see a lot of free information, PowerPoint slides. Um, uh, their weekly radio show podcast. They do, I think, three times a week. They do little video things you can better understand the market with. You know that stuff's all free. Uh, they also do. I, I, and Jack, I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about this. Have you ever talked about Meetup.com for Meetup groups? Uh, occasionally, uh, not not a lot. Uh, but I've mentioned it more on the the little bit I've done uh, hundred plus episodes of business podcasting over there. But on, on TSP, not really. I probably should because there's like a gajillion TSP Meetup groups now. Right. There's probably a Meetup group on just about anything you can think of out there. Exactly. That's why I bring it up. And Investors Business Daily is really good at that. They sponsor. Um, Local groups. So if you go to meetup.com and put in Investors Business Daily or IBD, you'll probably find one or two groups or a certain community. You don't have to subscribe to the newspaper. It's free. You can just go there. You'll meet local investors like yourself and people that are beginners all the way to people that are um, you know, been doing it for years. I, I, I belong and started a group in my area. It's, it's just a good place to meet people. Awesome. So, hey, your next piece of advice sounds a lot like what you tell somebody going to Vegas or Atlantic City. Yeah. Um, only invest what you're prepared to lose. Absolutely. You should always, before you invest, you should always be prepared and aware of the risks. Uh, people compare investing to gambling, and I always say no gambling has much better odds. Um, what you have to, and this gets back to the prep part, like we talked about in the beginning. Take care of your preps. If you have $1,000 or a $1 million to invest, whatever it is, you need to be prepared to lose that. Are you going to lose all of it? Probably not. But if losing that would evict you from your home or not be able to feed your kids dinner that night, you don't want to invest it, right? I mean, you really only want to prepare what, what you can afford to lose. And there's people, people always want a number. Okay, well, what does that mean? How much of my net worth should I invest? I'll, oftentimes, I'll throw out the number 25% of your net worth. That's really just something I've gathered after talking to uh, kind of self-made Millionaires, before you and I had talked about the millionaire next door, it's kind of after talking to those kind of guys, generally they have about 25% of their money into the stock market. They have, let's say you have a, a million dollar net worth. This is a, a guy that lives in a you know, middle, uh, middle class neighborhood. He has, owns a small business. He has 250000 350000 in his home, generally paid off. He has about $250,000 in the stock market. And then the balance of 500000 whatever that is, he has tied up into his business. So 25% of your net worth is, is can make sense, but again, it depends where you're at in your life. Are you 23 years old, just getting out of college, or are you 85 years old, living on a fixed income? Um, I, I would say generally it's going to fluctuate. No, that's something most financial advisors don't have a freaking clue about, that as a business owner, I want the majority of my investment in my business, not somebody else's business. That that is so hard to tell the off the shelf conventional you know Amex or Edward Jones advisor. It, it doesn't compute with what they've been taught and trained to believe. 
Yes, right. And, and, and I'd, I'd modify what you say just a little bit in terms of not necessarily in your own business, but wherever you can get the best returns, which, gener- sure. which generally is your own business. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying as a business owner. Obviously, if you're not a business owner, this does not apply. But if you are a business owner and you can put capital to use for yourself and build the value of your business, where if you turn around one day and sell that business, you're taking all the money, um, There's there or you're establishing that business to run without you and continue to produce income from you, and yet you're putting the majority of your investable money into Exxon. To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, it's, it's all about return on, on investment. If, if, if you can put a dollar in your business and it generates you four dollars, why would you put it in the stock market and get 10%? I mean, it, may, it makes no sense. Um, and it has a lot to do with the type of business as well. If you look at my business, it's not a product-focused business. There's not a lot of place to hold capital in the business. So that's less true for me. Right. But when we, were, you know, when we were in the business of telecommunications, when we were in the business of corporate recruitment, when we were in the business of software development, those are businesses that we wanted money in the business. Right? I didn't want to take the money that I could have invested in my own business and controlled and put it in Exxon and then go to a VC and get money with a bunch of strings attached in huge repayment terms. Right, right. And again, if you look at the millionaire next door guy, he has his home paid off, so that's his real estate investment. He has his business, the bulk of his money, say half a million dollars in his, in his business, which is generating him income. And then for some diversity, he'll put you know, a quarter of his money into the stock market. That makes sense to me. Completely makes sense to me. So again, it depends on where you're at, what your net worth is, uh, what your goals are. But somewhere between ten to seventy-five percent of your money, maybe you want to to be investing. But but it's always a risk. Uh, we know coming through two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you can lose forty, fifty percent of your money in, in the blink of an eye. Sure. The th- the thing is, when your when your own business is at risk, you know it, right? Versus you know people tell you that everything's swelling okay elsewhere. So that's another reason I like that. You also say to um, open an account at a discount brokerage, and you were talking about how you remember when you used to be have to make a phone call to make a trade, and you could you know manually input things with a touch tone. You know, I remember back when my father with his investments, the only way he could do it back then was to make a phone call and talk to his broker, and tell the broker to make the trade. And that was the only way that the average person could. And I remember him talking about how much power people that had seats on the exchange had because they could just do a trade at will. And, and the reality is today, anybody can do that. Anybody can do the trade. That's right. I said, when I got started with uh, you know, using Charles Schwab uh, many, many years ago, it was like $110 to make, it, to make a trade. And you had to have you had to make a significant trade just to pay off, you know, because that was $110 to buy the stock. You had to pay $110 to sell it. So you were out $220 just doing nothing. Um, big, big difference. We have much advantage today. And I'm glad you brought that up about, about like, the, the old market makers and people on the floor having an advantage. Today, people will say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm disadvantaged against the big guys. They have high-frequency trading or they have algorithms or whatever. Someone always has an advantage over you. 30, sure. 30 years ago, there were the, the traders on the floor. Today, it's, it's uh, you know, high-frequency trading. The bottom line is the individual investor going through a discount stockbroker can be very nimble. They can move in and out of a market very quickly. They have a, have a great deal of advantages. Um, it's, it, it's just a great time to be an investor. Do you have any uh, discount firms you recommend or specifically don't recommend? I've heard you mention Trade quite a bit. E-Trade's very well known. I have holdings there. They're not the cheapest, but they're cheap, and, and they've always worked well for me. 
Um, I like a lot of the flexibility E-Trade offers me. Uh, there are some maybe that you might say don't use. I, I really don't – I wouldn't say not to use any of them. Over my, you know, 27 years, I've used, I've used TD Ameritrade before when it, back when it was something else. I've used Scottrade. I've used E-Trade. I, I originally was with Schwab and never, actually never, never closed my Schwab account. Even when I went to other people, I kept my Schwab account. So I would say those four or five top name brand ones, again, it, it's like a, a Ford pickup truck or a Chevy pickup truck. Figure out which one's best for you. You know, call them up. They, they can give you some free trades. Um, check out their website. See if you like it. If you don't, go to the other guy. They're all going to charge you somewhere between you know five to fifteen dollars, depending upon how much you trade. It's it's peanuts in comparison to you know hopefully what you're trading. Right? You're gonna, you're going to hopefully be trading enough money that that ten dollars you're using for the commission, uh, for, you know, for the transaction fee doesn't really matter. But I would definitely say go to a discount broker. Don't. Don't go to some full-service thing because you're going to be talking to a salesman that knows probably less about stocks than you do. Might as well be making your own decisions. Now, there's the, what I call the hostage money, the 401k money. Um, people have a lot less flexibility in a 401k. And you say, as far as that money goes, only trade index um, mutual funds inside of your 401ks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me let me elaborate on that a little bit. First of all, for 401ks, I would only contribute if your employer matches. So if your employer matches one percent, three percent, five percent, I would only contribute up to that amount. And again, I'm not giving anybody advice. This is just my personal preference. What I would do, what I what I have done. I would take the rest of that money if I was going to put it into a retirement account. I would take whatever my employee is not matching, and I would put it into a Roth IRA. With a Roth IRA, uh, as a married couple, you can you can do ten thousand uh, dollars. With five thousand for you, five thousand for your spouse. If you're over fifty, I think you can go up to twelve thousand um, dollars. Roth IRA is is much more flexible, um, and and you know, with all these retirement accounts, there are limitations. If if you there's ways to get around that too. If you need the money, I'm not going to talk about those today. But but they're not as they're not as locked in as people think they are. But specifically for the retirement account, and actually too, with we're talking about Jack today on the on kind of an ele- elementary level for the beginning investor. I would only recommend them to be in index funds. Period. Whether they're in a, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a 401k plan, you're probably not going to be able to get index funds, but you can get mutual funds. So I would stick to the big three or four mutual funds: the S&P 500, you know, whatever it is in your account that mimics that, the the Russell 2000, which is the small cap stocks, and the um, the Nasdaq 100. Those, you know, those three are the big leaders. I'd stay away from the Dow Jones just because it's too narrow. And then what do you recommend a person does to protect their money inside that 401k? My, my advice when I started doing the show years ago was just move it into the, uh, the cash fund that, that, your, uh, that your 401k has available to you if you know the market's about to collapse like I did in 2008. I was just like, just get the hell out of the way of this. Uh, and then people started emailing me going, there's, there's, there's no cash fund. There's no money market fund in my 401k. There's a bond fund, and that's about it. Um, and I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe after what I've looked at and what I've examined, and I mean, I'm talking dozens of people's 401ks, people have sent me not their, their numbers, but their what's available, that the government through a back door has systematically eradicated uh, the money market cash option from the majority of 401ks because that immediately forces all of the safe money into government debt instruments. And again, I can't prove that, but I, when I look at that, I say, I know this sucks, but that is the safe, ha- the safest haven 
inside most 401ks. What say you? No, I agree with you. I, it, 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 all the 401k plans I've looked at in at least the last couple of years, they're, they're, those cash things are gone. They used to have a, a money market thing, which, which was, and to be technically correct, the money market was still tied up in a short-term it was a 90-day paper. 90-day paper, right? Commercial paper, treasury bills or whatever. But, but still, at least it was a money market fund. Now they're all, a lot of them specifically tied to government uh, bond funds. Um, and what's real insidious is there are still many, and I'd say the majority still are in that three-month range, but um, quite a few. And I just talked to a guy the other day when I was looking at his. His only option is a three years, a three-year duration in, in Bonds. Three years. And you watch. You watch, John. You watch that change. Yeah. You watch. I'm guaranteeing you. Two years from now, if we have this conversation, we'll be talking about the majority of them being three to five year bond funds. Yeah, they, they'll, they'll be five to ten probably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's that's really scary. Uh, and again, but if you're in a 401k, there's really no way to protect it. You you have to go with that. And again, that's why I say because of the limitation of what you get to invest in, and because of the the, the limitation of going to cash. I would only put in there what my employer matches. Other than that, I would put it in a Roth IRA uh, if I qualify for that. Or a, my next option beyond the Roth IRA would be a standard IRA. And if you're not going to do that, go to cash. Of course, if you own a business, there's there's simplified programs. There's, you know, more, if, if, you have your own, if you have your own business, there's a lot more options you can do. But if you're the standard working Joe, um, a Roth IRA really is, is hard to beat. There, there's, there's a lot of flexibility in a Roth IRA. Yeah, and I'm I'm big on the the Roth as you are. I, I I believe that the advisor that says, but see, your income tax will be a lower tax bracket you retire than it is today. You don't know that because you don't know what those ass clowns are going to do with tax code in the next twenty, thirty, forty years for some of these people. And and the concept that the government lowers taxes is a regular matter, of course. It's kind of asinine to even say that. And I, I know you can look at the tax code today and say, see, you're retired. You're only taking this money, much money out. Your income's lower, so your tax is lower. But, but trying to determine what the tax will be on income in the year you know, 2035, and anybody that says they can, to me, it's just full of crap. Whereas with a Roth, I've already paid the tax on that money. And do I think some shenanigans might happen? Yeah, but you... You mentioned it. There's ways to get a lot of that money out with no penalty. And if I think it's happening, that money's going out. Um, but assuming they keep the deal on that, I can bank on that money being what that money is um, without having it subject to taxation. Whereas when I put that money away today, I'm actually agreeing to let them change the deal because taxes get changed all the time. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I like about the Roth, too, is you don't have to take mandatory distributions when you're 72 and a half. And yeah. if you're, you know, right now, if you're 25 years old, you're not thinking about being 72 and a half. Uh, but I'm telling you, you know, clients I deal with, people are in their 80s and 90s year old. Maybe they, they don't need that money. They don't want that money. They want to leave it to their grandchildren or something. They, why should they have to pull it out now and pay taxes on it? With the Roth, you can just leave it in there for, for you know perpetuity through the, for the rest of your life, and I, I really like that aspect of it. Um, and I, and with the Roth and with the standard IRA, I, I, again, I'm not really worried about future taxes. I like knowing today I'm not paying any taxes. And, Correct. And when you build a substantial nest egg in your Roth IRA account, and you and you, you know, there's some years you're not going to make a lot of money, but if you do the right program, there are years when you will make more money than you can even imagine. And not having to pay 50% tax on that is 
I mean, that's, that's how you become wealthy. The, the Roth IRA yep. is really the, the only gift I think Congress has ever given the American people in my lifetime. You watch them try to take it away at some point. I just think that when they do, they're going to have to grandfather the existing accounts or else they're going to see the capital burn. Yeah, it could be, um, it could be a revolution, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's why I feel kind of safe with that one. Now, my, my other thing that I like about the Roth, and this is one of the few pieces I love Dave. I know you like Dave Ramsey, too, for debt elimination. I am not a fan of his strategy for investing, and based on what I've heard from you, you're probably not either. But one great piece of investing advice I'd hear, I'd hear him give on, uh, on IRAs and going with the Roth is it doesn't matter that it's pre-tax or post-tax in your daily economics because people either do 5% or 10% anyway. So no matter, you can make the case, that, yeah, you could put a little bit more in. But he's like, that's not how people behave. People pick a number and they invest it. So either way, the same amount of money ends up going in. And, and, and that's kind of a – what doesn't go in ends up getting put into the general spending, which is never around when you're 60, 70 years old. So financially, it just makes more sense. And that was actually one of the things I've bounced off a few of the, the typical off-the-shelf financial advisors that they went, ah. Uh. And, and that's really a great case to go with a Roth as well. Right. Yep, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, again, for, for most people, if they're under 50 as a, as a, as a family, they can put in that $10,000. That's as much or more than most people are going to save anyways. Yep. Um, it's, a good, it's a good chunk of money to put in there. Um, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, and again, on Dave Ramsey, I think you know that's another example too of listening to someone that has good advice. When he when he talks about debt elimination, getting out of debt, he's spot on, and that's yeah. and that's his audience. You know, so he knows that market. He he his advice there is perfect. Once you're out of debt, though, again, yeah, maybe maybe you've graduated beyond him, and you you need to go on to somebody like me, right? My, my clients aren't Dave Ramsey listeners, right? My clients know yeah. not to have credit card debt. They know not well, to, you know, not, not to have just a thousand dollars in an emergency fund, but, but yeah. And there's Dave's another, audience, that's good advice. There's another side to people like Dave Ramsey that where they have a certain amount of corporate control over them, where in some ways, you know, they can't say what they might believe. I don't believe for a minute that Dave Ramsey is so stupid <laughs> that in, that in August of 2008, he wasn't going, get my freaking money out. Right. Right. But when you have 4 million radio listeners and you have a nationally syndicated television show, if you come on the air and tell everybody else to do that, you become part of the self-fulfilling prophecy, and they will hang you. You cannot say that on Fox News. You cannot say that on a, a 4 million uh, view, uh, listener radio show uh, with, with corporate controls over you because you are done. Right, because if four million people hear that and I'll call their broker in the morning and go put my stuff in cash, that has a massive effect on the market. So there's some level. I, I believe that I can't prove that, but I believe that there's some level of that involved with people like Ramsey or Susie Orman, who I, you know, at least I like Ramsey. I think Susie Orman's a freaking pea brain. Yeah, I, but I, people I, with that kind of reach, they cannot. They're not permitted to say what they really think in that scenario. I, yeah, you're right, and, and Jack, that's why I love my lifestyle, and I know you have a similar one where we're independent. We can do what we want. Yeah, uh, I don't give a shit. I'll tell you, it's crashing, guys. Get out. That's that's yeah, the, you know just. just uh, and with all of our with all of our recommendations, I I'm an expert in my own opinion, right? I'll tell you I'll tell you what's on my mind, and I. I've structured my life in such a way that I can do that. It's very fulfilling and very liberating. Um, yeah, I asked an advisor in, in, in the summer of 2008 when I was like, I'm, I want to be all in cash. 
Um, and he's like, you're so young and why, you know, do this. And there's plenty of time. And I said, can you look me in the face and tell me in any way you believe that there's a potential to make 5% positive return on the market between now and the end of the year? This is like June. And uh, he said, I really don't think so. I said, is there the potential that I might lose 40% sitting there? He goes, well, yeah, but stop. Stop. There's no justification for my money being at risk with those numbers. Right? And it turned out it was more than a 40% loss people took by February of 2009. And uh, I, I think it's in those scenarios that you've got to move out of the way of the train. And that comes with my next question for you or your next thing on your outline. It says swing trade between cash and index ETFs based on market sentiment. So now most advisors say, I'm not a trader. I invest for the long haul. And we'll get to that one later. But well, you're, you're trading? Isn't that you know, heresy in the world of, of, uh, of financial advisors? Yeah, absolutely. I am trading, absolutely. And I, I tell people that. It's, it's actually even written in my disclosures that I you know, legally have to give people. I, I consider myself a, a, a mixed trader where I look at fundamentals, I look at technicals, and I look at trends. So ultimately, I'm a trend trader, but I don't just base it on a trend. I base it on fundamentals and technicals. Um, and let, before we talk about two of those, let's jump back into those ETFs a little bit. Exchange-traded funds, some people may not know what that is, but these are sort of like the old mutual funds. They're, they're things that you can trade like a regular stock. Um, you, you don't have to wait for the end of the day for it to clear. Uh, you, you, you can go to a discount broker and, and buy into the S&P 500, or you can buy into a gold fund. You can buy into virtually anything you want. The reason I like the indexes, and the indexes, whether it's an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund, and this is particularly for the beginning investor or an investor that doesn't have a, a large amount of money to invest is, it gives you diversification. It gives you diversification with performance. So if you, if you invest in the S&P and you only have $10,000, you know your $10,000 are being split up over 500 companies. If you invest in the Russell 2000, your $10,000 is split up between 10,000, excuse me, 2,000 companies. So you get the diversification, and, and by definition, the indexes are the market, right? So when you talk about the market being up, um, if you're in the S&P and it's a, it's, a, it's a bull market, it's a rally, then uh, 70% of the, of at least 70% of stocks are going to move up when the market moves up, okay? And you think, again, by definition, it has to. If, if 50% of them moved up and 50% of them moved down, then it wouldn't go anywhere. It would be flat, right? So have, to have the market go up or to have the market go down, more than half of the stocks have to do that. And the reason I want to make that point is what we, we, we talked about before, we're talking about risk, right? And we're talking, if you go to Las Vegas and you shoot craps, you know your odds. If you put money on a roulette table, you know your odds. When you invest in a stock, if you go out and buy a penny stock, there's no odds. That stock could go bankrupt tomorrow. You don't know anything about it. Um, it say, you know, even with the blue chip stock, you go out and buy um, you know, Verizon or AT&T or something tomorrow, sure, it could be fine, but... Could it drop 10, 20, 30, 40% tomorrow? Absolutely, it could. So, well, could it go bankrupt? I mean, people look at big companies and say, that could never happen. Bear Stearns, uh, you know, I mean, Enron. Remember Arthur Anderson used to be a top seven accounting firm. Yeah. In, in the net, you know, 24 hours after they got involved with Enron, they were, they were not even there anymore. You couldn't even, can't even find their name online, I don't think, anymore. Uh, the, the risk is definitely there, and that's why you, you want the diversification. And you also, and again, particularly as someone that doesn't have a, a lot of money, where you're not sophisticated to be selling short and taking advantage of 
advantage of options and things. If you're just investing your own money, the best thing you can do is buy when the, when the, the general market's going up and sell when it's com- you know, either when it's coming down or before it comes down. Because, again, you actually say get into the rally a little bit late. That way you know it's real. And then get out early. That way you get to keep your gains. Absolutely. You, you, and, and you're never going to beat the market that way. But, but so what? You're never going to have a catastrophic loss. And that's what's more important. If you know, the market today, I don't know, it, it was actually up. It's kind of funny. The, everybody's worried about a government shutdown, all the politicians, and the market's actually up because they, they really don't care what the politicians do. But, yeah, so, this is actually uh, yesterday for us, uh, for John and I. And as of 1.22 p.m. Uh, October 1st, the Dow is up 45 points, the S&P is up 10, and the NASDAQ is up 34. Not huge gains or anything, but not catastrophic collapses. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, uh, the, the NASDAQ, when I looked at it as we started, it was up 1%, and, um, and actually I think it has made a multi-year high today. So th- that's good news, and that's, that's when you want to be in the market. You can... We're going to talk a little bit about situational awareness and, and, and being able to gauge market sentiment. You know, again, if you, and if you read um, Peter Lynch's book, he talks a little bit about that too. But again, this is, this, a lot of this is common sense. I don't need a meteorological degree to know whether I need a raincoat or not today. Right? I can look out the window, see, hey, it's nice and sunny out. I'll leave my raincoat at home. Um, a lot of that is what we're going to do with the stock market as, as small individual investors. But again, the key, key thing I want to emphasize to people is when the market is going up, the majority of stocks are going up. If at least 70% of stocks are going up and then you, in, you invest into that rally, then that means that you only have you know, less than 30% chance of losing your money. doesn't work all the time. Of course, you could buy today and by the afternoon it could, it could go down. But you know, when, when the tide's coming in, that's, that's when the tide's coming in. And, and that's when people get caught up in being um, you know, contrarian and things like that. And by nature... I think you are too. By nature, I'm a contrarian. I, I do tend to do opposite of what the crowd's doing, and that's not a good thing in investing. I, I've actually had to. That's what's one of the things in my my personal trading I had to adjust over the years because I was definitely the person that would say, "Well, if if everybody else is selling, I should be buying." Okay, and 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 to to a degree that's true, but particularly when you're new and when you don't have a whole lot of money, you can't afford to make too many mistakes because. You, you you can get caught up in those catastrophic losses that way. No, I'll tell you, I've always modified that. When, when, when others are selling, you should be buying. When others are finished selling, you should be buying. When, when the selling stops, right, if the sell-off is over, and as long as people are still dumping, if you're buying then, there's an old phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, being in the industry as long as you have, trying to catch a falling knife. Right. right, and when 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 people were like, you know, going, oh, GM could never go broke, and buying GM stocks, like that's a falling knife, guys. That's, <laughs> you know, and everybody got burned in that. The taxpayers got burned, the shareholders got burned, the bondholders got burned. The only people that didn't get burned were the bigwigs at GM. Right. Yeah. You mentioned Enron earlier. I think I think it was Enron was at like sixty dollars a share, and within three weeks it was like sixty cents. Um, you know, oh, it could never go lower. It could never go lower. Uh, absolutely. Uh, another old adage on Wall Street, and this is a, a lot of them you can't trust in, but this is another good one that rings true, is to, and this, this kind of comes back to the situational awareness, um, buy the rumor, sell the news. And, and what, ah. you know, what that means basically is it's the hype, right? It's the hype before. When you, when you, hear, the, when you hear the hype, that's when you, you want to get into it, cause it, or you really want to get into you know, pre-hype, but you've got to get into it as soon as you can. And 
before that news comes out, you probably want to get out of it. And, and Apple's a perfect example. And again, we're not, we're not making any recommendations here, but if you look at Apple's stock in recent weeks, um, leading up, you know, Apple's obviously been down. It was earlier in the year, like $700, then it went down to like $400. I think recently it's around $450. Um, but it had dropped down, and prior to the release of the iPhone S, there was all kind of speculation, and, and the stock started creeping right up, and that was a great time to have bought that. And, and again, everybody knew it was coming out, so you could have bought it early, and as all those rumors are coming out, ride that stock up, sell it a day or a couple of days before the actual official announcement, and then when the official announcement come out, the stock dropped again because everybody's like, oh, it's, it's just what we knew, right? It, it was nothing, nothing new. The stock, <laughs> the stock came down, but you know what? A week and a half later when they when they announced their sales for the iPhone S, they, they broke a record. They sold 9 million phones in a weekend, and the stock was back up again. So you, you had three buy and sell points where you could have made, again, this isn't huge money. You could have made, I don't know, 3 to 5%. But, you know, 5, 5% three times is 15%. Yeah, Dad's going to say, you make three, 3 to 5%, but 3 to 5 times, yeah, right? In, in three, so you're in, looking at 9 to 15% in a, in a very in, short window where your advisor tells you, look how good you did when you made 7% on a mutual fund absolutely. over the whole year. Yep, absolutely. And, and again, that's not, you know, you're not going to put 100% of your money into Apple. Um, I We're talking about the about the beginning investor, and again, I'm, I'm encouraging people that they would just they would just be putting their money into index funds anyways, to the, the, the major index funds. Um, but if you do want to go into individual stocks, I would never recommend that someone put more than 10% in any, any one stock. And, and that gets back to, you know, how much are you going to invest? Well, if you only have $1,000 and you want to put that into 10 stocks, well, you're talking about $100 a stock, it. right? Even if you're at a discount broker and you're your trade fees will eat your money. Trade fees are going to eat your money, absolutely. So, yeah. so, you know, when people say, well, how much money do I need to invest in stocks? You need to overcome that transaction fee uh, barrier. And, you know, to me, I, I really think, I think for the, particularly for the average person that's making their own decisions, they, they probably need, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 before they're investing in individual stocks. Yeah, I think there was an old book. I think it was Charles Schwab's book back in the 80s I remember reading. It basically said kind of like where you need to be for you know trading in the market is about thirty thousand, and he kind of pointed out how how you know legit how you know reasonable it was to save up that amount of money by your mid to late twenties when you're probably smart enough to be doing it anyway, um, as far as trading, and uh, it might have been Schwab, it might have been somebody else, uh, I don't remember, but uh, I remember the book uh, th- that I read that in a book, um, you know there's. Uh, there's another side to that, too. Like, you mentioned something there that I want to tell a quick story on. Like, never put all your money into one stock. So I mentioned the falling knife that was GM. Well, back when that was going on, and this is an example where I don't tell the audience exactly what I'm doing because I know they'll do what I say, and I'm not in that business. And I don't want, you know, my loss to become the audience's loss. So I give the general view, and then you figure out what you want to do. But at the same time that GM was taking the government money and Chrysler was taking the money, Ford said no. And I immediately went, they know they can make it, or they would have took the money. And two, the market rewards those who take the gamble and the risk. And I bought a fairly sizable amount of Ford stock at like a dollar and 40-ish cents a, a share. I made a killing on that within six months. And I remember talking to my buddy Neil Franklin, this guy's a multimillionaire, and saying, I should have put a freaking ton of money in that stock. And he said, Jack... English guy, and they always make you feel worse about it because they say it so nicely, you know. That is the stupidest thing that's ever come out of your mouth. Because just because you won doesn't mean you should have put more into it. 
And I think that we have, as, as we start to look at potential gains, we'll take more of a risk for a gain than we'll take as a safety against the loss. And that's where you get hurt. And he was absolutely right. It was a stupid thing to say or even think. I should have been happy with the results of the trade and only using a portion of what you would consider expendable uh, investment. And I was like, this is a gamble. I know it's a gamble, but I think it's a good one. And putting a, a, a huge chunk of money in there would have been really stupid. Right, yeah, and, and like, I, like we start out saying, don't invest more than you want to lose. Um, with, with my clients' money, I would you know, definitely, with, with index funds, I would put more than 10% of their money into an index fund, again, because, sure. it's, because it's spread out, right? But for an individual stock, um, unless they, they tell me in writing they want to do more than 10%, I would keep it to 10% of their, of their net worth, not necessarily of their portfolio, but of their net worth. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's, it's don't invest any more than you want to lose. And I'll tell you, I'm a gambler with my own money. In, in 2009, uh, when I saw us pulling, in, in March of 2009, when I saw us pulling out of that, I made some concentrated investments in individual stocks. And um, I was prepared to lose what I put in, but I did extremely well. But, but again, it was, it was money that I knew beforehand that I was prepared to lose. And uh, so you just have to know what your what your risk what your risk level is. And, hey, let's talk a, cu- a couple things about this too for the for this individual investor that's just getting started and they're like, I don't know anything about the stock market. Um, that, that that situational awareness part of it, what they have to not get caught up in is the talking heads, the experts on TV, you know, watching watching guys that have honking horns and, and crazy stuff going on in the background. And you know, so you have you have the circus clown and then you have the real sophisticated you know person on PBS or whatever. But but they're all they all have their own agenda. They all have a biased opinion. Probably most of them don't even know what they're talking about. Or like you had mentioned earlier, they can't tell you the truth. Even if they could, even if they knew what the truth was, they can't tell it to you. And, oh, and the bigger the bigger their 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 footprint, the more I believe that's true. Yep. Yeah. And and, and you mentioned Susie. The, the bigger the fake smile is, the more I oh. think it's not true. She, I heard the other day she is she is America's most trusted financial advisor. She's a complete imbecile. <laughs> She's a complete and total imbecile. There are millions of people who who were thinking about getting out of the way of the train wreck of 08 that didn't specifically because she said not to. And then two years later, this pea brain's on our TV set going, everything's different now. You're going to be working till you're 70. It's the new American dream. Yes, because I've screwed you out of your money by going along with the party line. And if if there's a person that that overdoes the leather, it's her. I, I, I just... Ah, if you listen to her, you might as well be listening to who she sounds like for investment advice, Mickey Frickin' Mouse. I'm sorry to go off, but just yeah. If there's one person in the financial, you know, media that I despise above all else, it's her. Well, if if you follow the money, if people dig into not only her but anybody, dig into them and see where they actually make their money, it'll explain why they do what they do. Yeah, and and you can it, you can, you can find you can find that out online, and and you know I'll let, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on that one. I'll I'll tell you what I'll guarantee you people at that level of celebrity they have investment portfolios. Their portfolios are probably pretty successful. They probably don't do diddly crap with their portfolio. They have a high level, high net worth financial manager doing that for them. I bet you Susie, I, I, I'll get sued probably. I bet you Susie Orman never picks her own stocks or mutual funds or her own investments. I, I really highly doubt it. Yeah, I, I, I can't comment on that. But like I say, if you, if you do, do some Googling <laughs> around and you find out where people really make their, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like Google. Google. 
Google's not really a search engine. Google's not into making cars that drive themselves. Google sells advertising. Yeah. That's what Google does. And, and when you dig down into how companies and people make their money, you'll better understand their motivation. Um, sure. So, so anyway, and, and people looking at things, situational awareness, looking at what's going on around them. Don't, don't listen to these people on TV. Don't listen to these experts. And if you do, just read between the lines like we've talked about. Um, but just look, like, like I said with the weatherman, look outside. Is it, is it sunny out or are there storm clouds overhead? You can have as much of an idea of what's going on in the marketplace as anybody else because I, I'm telling you, I look at this stuff all day long, and tomorrow I don't know what's going to happen. Right? I don't know if there's going to be a terrorist attack. I don't know if there's going to be a tsunami I don't know if there's going to be a meltdown of nuclear reactors in Japan. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? No one knows. And so all you can basically tell is what's happening today. And, and generally you can say, hey, it's smooth sailing today, or it's, it's a good time to be out of the market. Um, what, what, why, why the market fluctuates so much? The market is schizophrenic, right? It's, it's, based, on, it's based on people, right? As, as much as they talk about algorithms and computers and all this, well, they're all programmed by people. And so the market is, it comes down to people. And the market is, you know, what, schizophrenic, bipolar, uh, manic depressive. Schizophrenic, call, bipolar, spoiled brat. Call it whatever you want to, right? It's, there, there is a value of a stock. A stock has a value today, which is based on past earnings and, and future earnings expectations. Everything is based on those earnings today and, and, and perceived earnings in the future. But because the market's schizophrenic, because people are schizophrenic, the value of that stock is going to vary dramatically. It's going to be manic and be, be you know, uh, you look at Amazon or um, Priceline, um, LinkedIn, these stocks like that, they're valued 150, 200 times what they're making today, if, if they have any earnings at all. Somebody, you know, the dot-com era, where there was no earnings at all. So it can be manic and be extremely, extremely overpriced. And then the other side of it... Um, it could be very undervalued. Uh, again, not making a recommendation, but we talked about Apple earlier in the show. Apple right now, I think, has a, a earnings of, I don't know, 10, 10 times earnings, 11 times earnings. I, to me, that just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, again, I'm not, not, not making a recommendation on that. People can think about it themselves. So, so why? You know, why is Google uh, or why is Apple seeming to be depressed and Amazon, no matter how much money they lose or how much they set back their earnings, they still trade it? You know, three you know, uh, three digit multiples. It's just it's just a manic market, right? And maybe the smart money knows something, and that's why it's so high. But you you have to you have to look at that, and you have to make your decisions of what I want to invest in, what I don't. Peter Lynch's book he talks a, a lot about investing in what you know, which is good, but it also has limitations. I would say you know, obviously you don't want to invest in things you don't know, right? So if you've never heard of you know, if you want to invest in a sneaker company, you know, Nike, Nike is probably the athletic shoe company to invest in because you've heard of it. Um, so, so you don't want to invest in things you don't know. But at the same time, you know, we live in bubbles, so we don't know everything. But you do know what's going on around you, and you can have a kind of good feel for what's going on in the marketplace. Just because everybody says, oh, you know, the government's going to shut down today or tomorrow, or because they say, oh, the Fed's going to taper, you know, gee, the Fed's going to go from, 85 billion a month down to 75 billion. Well, you know what's 10 billion a month? <laughs> That's nothing. But you know the, the media obsessed for it all summer long, and at the end of the day, the Fed never even changed anything. Um, you know, same thing with the sequester, all those kind of things. You just that, that's again that, that's buying on the rumor, selling on the news. 
when, when people are worried that the world's going to come to an end because the, 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 the debt ceiling isn't going to get raised, that's probably a time to buy. And then afterwards, when the market shoots up 2 3 5%, maybe it's time to get out. Uh, again, just not making a recommendation, just giving people an observation. Um, we, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I was going to – you like to say minarchist. Um, and that's a term I hadn't really heard before. Uh, right. Twice, you know, have heard you mention it last year or so. But um, we were talking about being a contrarian. I was thinking about that, and I guess I think I'm a, a min contrarian, right? I'm not. I'm not a total contrarian. I don't totally <laughs> swim upstream. But like we talked about, when other people are selling, like you said, when they when they've stopped selling, that's the time to get in. We don't know when that is exactly, and that's why we want to look at price volume. Every everything. It's not what the talking heads say. It's what the, not what the experts say. It's all based on price and volume, supply and demand, just like you learn in basic economics. If the price is going up under increasing volume, that means more people are paying more money for the same thing, and that's a good thing. And you want to ride that trend up as long as you can. When you see more people are selling than are buying, you want to get out of it. And, and it's just, it, no matter what books you read, no matter how you study the market, it basically comes down to that. So, yeah, because that comes, goes to your next rule, never buy and hold. Once again, you have completely gone off the reservation of everything that the off-the-shelf financial advisor tells people to do because it's what he's been trained to do. Yeah, and that, that's the classic propaganda. If you tell a lie long enough, people believe it. And e- even though I, I never held that on my own beliefs, you know, 10 years ago, if you would have asked me that, I would have said, yeah, that's good advice. Now, I didn't do that. I, w- I was a swing trader. I have always have been. But, but I had just heard it so much, I would have said, yeah, you know, for you, the average investor, that's a good thing to do. And it makes Yeah, sense. wheat's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's awesome. They show all those commercials with it waving in. The, I mean, it's, there, there's so many things like that. It's just been said long enough that people assume it must be true. Right. And so, so people don't need to take our advice. Just let them go back and pull up any, any length of time. And, and I don't care if you look at the NASDAQ or the, the Dow or the S&P, but about every five years – in the last 20 years, we've had a major correction of, you know, 30 to 50 percent. Um, people talk about, oh, the, you know, the Dow, uh, the Dow and the S&P are at all-time highs. Yeah, well, the Nasdaq is never the, – the Nasdaq today, as I said, I think it's at a multi-year high, but it's not at a, it's not at a all-time high. It, it has never recovered from the dot-com boom. And so if you had bought and hold that, that the Nasdaq in 2000, 2001 – uh, you know what? You you still have never gotten your money back, let alone discounting for for inflation. Yeah. When when is Yahoo stock going to see two ninety nine a share again? Absolutely. Yeah. And let, let yeah let's, yeah let, let let let's talk about a couple of those. So again, the listeners don't have to let's take what we say. Let them just go back and look at it. Look at Walmart. Okay, Walmart, great company stock. It did fairly well after the after the the big recession. Um, but you know. 25, 30 years ago, Walmart was making a lot of blue-collar people millionaires. But it, it ran its course, right? And then now it just kind of became a, a big blue-cap, uh, you know, blue-ribbon stock like anybody else. Microsoft, yeah, sure, it was hot in the 80s and the 90s. Not anymore, right? They can't even, they can't even make a, 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 a surface thing work. Uh, they, they, Microsoft can't freaking figure out what to call a search engine. No, no. Right? So, <laughs> they just keep changing the name of it. And speaking of search engines, look at Google. Yeah, you know, Google's yeah. uh, it's $900 now. It, again, it's done good since the recession. It, I think during the recession it got down um, 
I don't remember what it got down to, 300 bucks or something. Sure, it's up to yeah. it's up to 900 now. So that's been good, but it still doesn't have that growth trajectory like it did before. Now, could it change? They're a very innovative company. And again, tomorrow they could come out with something new where they could, but they're, they're not growing like they did seven years ago. Uh, Netflix, Netflix in the last 12 months has gone, I think, from, it went from like $300 to $60 to $400 in a year, right? All over the map. And again, that's, that's the schizophrenic nature of the market. If you buy and held Netflix, you're either, you've either lost a fortune or you're back to where you were. Well, you know, what good was that? Um, Blackberry, uh, you know, that 10 years ago, Blackberry was a, was a, a great technology for cell phones. Now their stock's down to seven bucks a share. Uh, De- Dell Computers. Dell Computers was a, was a, you know, you made a lot of money on Dell Computers in, in 2000. Not, not anymore. They had to go, they had to go private and just anybody that held onto it lost big money. JC Penney. Um, I've watched JC Penney over the last 15, 20 years, probably, I think at least 20 years I've been trading in and out of JC Penney. And again, I've literally seen that stock go from, you know, under ten dollars to close to a hundred dollars to again today I think it's I think it's seven dollars today or something eight dollars a share, unbelievable. And Jack, you'll love this. I don't know if you've been paying attention to J.C. Penney or not, but a week or so ago they were saying, no, we've got plenty of money, no problem. You know, we <laughs> we fired our CEO, we've done all these things. We we realized that bringing the guy in from the Apple store didn't fit our retail clothing department store, so. Now that we've lost money for the last three years, we lost billions of dollars in the last three years, we decided to fire him and we'll bring in other people. And, and we don't need any more money. And then, oh, by the way, Goldman Sachs does a, does a, uh, raises a bunch of money for them to give them more money. And then, oh, by the way, they do a, a secondary offering now through Goldman Sachs that I believe is, I, I think it's diluted their, their shares, their stock just in the last week, maybe 25 to 30%. And at the same time, Goldman Sachs analysts are saying, don't buy JCPenney's. Yeah. So they're, raising, yeah, well. they're raising debt, they're selling new stock, and then they're saying don't buy it. All, all from all from Goldman Sachs. I mean, what a shock! You can't make that stuff up. So yeah. So buy yeah. and hold. Don't no matter what. Again, you're right. It's like the food pyramid. It's like eat, eat, you know, eat bread. It's good for you. Don't believe it. Go out and look at it yourself. Study, study. Just look at a couple charts, historical charts. You'll see that that's not a good idea. These high flying stocks. When they crash, they generally lose 80%. And that's how, that's how a Netflix can go from $400 to $60 overnight. In a very short time, they can lose 80%. And they, yeah. and they can get that back, but to get back 80% after you lost it is a whole lot more than 80%. It's more like 150% or whatever. Let me cover one of the big financial lies. This is why I refer to the industry as a bunch of financial liars. Because when you when you talk about downtimes in the market, what the average advisor will do is sit down with a little piece of paper, because he's been prepared for this, that'll show the years of the biggest losses, and he'll show within a year or two after that some of the biggest gains. And say, see, by, by writing this out, we capture these gains. But what he doesn't tell you is if the, the loss was a 50% loss, and the gain was a 60% gain, you're still down. That, that's the big lie, that they don't actually explain. Well, it went up 68% here, and it only went down 50% here. Well, if your money goes down by 50%, once that baseline's established at the bottom, that baseline has to go up by 100% to get your money back. Right. Yep, I have seen and, and that is such a big pile of shit. I'm sorry. That is one of the biggest freaking lies, and most of the guys doing it don't even get that they're doing it. 
Yeah, I have some some charts on my website. If people look on my uh, kind of my blog site on there, they'll see exactly what you're talking about. The S and P and the Nasdaq, how they how they had gone up. Except, again, it's happened about every five years. And people right now are saying we're overdue. Well, you know, maybe we are. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be ten years. But there, in the last fifteen twenty years, about every five years, there's been a crash. Markets come down, you know, forty five fifty percent, and it's got to go up a hundred percent to get you even again. And it, so it's like global warming, right? I can tell you the earth is cooling or not, but it depends on when I start measuring it. And that's the same thing these financial guys will do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So your last one, because we do need to wrap up for over an hour here, is learn from your mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Learn from the mistakes. And hey, on that buy and hold two thing, like we talked about at the beginning, the, the, biggest, the biggest thing is not when to buy a stock, it's when to sell it. When you buy a stock, you should know when you're going to get out. You should know when you're going to get out to take your profit, and you should know when to get out to take your loss. You may adjust that as you get into it. You know, if you sure. if you think, hey, I'm going to sell it at a 10% profit, and all of a sudden market conditions change and it gets better, and you say, oh, I'm going to hold on for 20%, that's fine. You can reevaluate them. But you should know when you're going to sell more than you should know when you're going to buy. Um, and, and that really comes from learning from your mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to, you're not going to win every time. In fact, you're probably going to have more losses. You're going to have more trading losses than the wins, but the goal is to have to make more money during those wins. And that's why when your stocks go up, you want, you want to take a, maybe a 10 or 20% margin uh, you know, profit on, if, you're t- if you're dealing with individual stock. But you want to limit your losses to you know, somewhere between 5 and 10%, depending upon what kind, of, what kind of market you're going to be in. You don't ever want to have a catastrophic loss because you cannot recover or very difficult to recover if you lose you know, 45% of your money. So learn from your mistakes. It's more emotional. You know, maybe you're not good with math. Maybe you're not good with learn, looking at charts and things like that. Eh, you, you can just find out what your strengths are. Maybe you're better off at just looking at human nature. Maybe you're better off at, at learning, you know, these trends we're talking about. So learn to deal with your emotions. Learn to recognize the trends and, and learn from your mistakes. Don't keep doing the same thing over again if it's wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, um, you're actually going to be around so people can meet you uh, at a place I'm going to be real soon, right? You're going to be in Denver? Yes, I'll be at Denver at the Self-Reliance Expo coming up this weekend, and I look forward to uh, to meeting the listeners out there at, uh, at some of the TSP events. Yeah, we're going to be doing an early meet and greet. Details came out yesterday. Uh, not yet for today because we're talking, but yesterday as far as the listeners are concerned. Uh, we're doing an early get-in-the-door an hour early on Friday, and you're going to be there at that meet and greet, and you're going to be giving out some books, right? Yeah, one of the books I talked about today by uh, William O'Neill, the, the 24, um, um, 24 uh, Lessons for, for Successful Investment, I have uh, five copies of that, and I'll be giving those out. We'll figure out how to, how to do the door prizes, but we'll be giving those out, and I'll, I'll be out there to talk to people. That'll be great. So, uh, folks, make sure you come by that if you can. Uh, again, we're going to be an hour early Friday, a half hour early Saturday off the post at times. Full details are in a post on the blog. And uh, basically, it's going to be a Q&A session both days with myself and Stephen Harris. And we'll have John there on uh, on Friday. I think he'll be there probably Saturday, too. I'll but, be there uh, both days. I don't know if you'll be there early on Saturdays, late night, probably Friday. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely come hang out with us. And uh, we'll be uh, in that post. You'll see the hotel we're staying at. And I don't know if we have time set up yet or not. Uh, but, basically, we're going to be doing kind of after hours, have a beer and a drink with us uh, at the hotel we're staying at right in, right in the downtown Denver area. Uh, so uh, you can meet us both before and after or during the event. 
And uh, I'll also have published times that I'll be in the Speaker's Lounge uh, for talking to you guys. And I'm also going to be taking my uh, my new camera gear with me and uh, interviewing a lot of the vendors while I'm there. So, guys, stay tuned while I'm gone. We'll be doing reruns, but you'll be getting a lot of YouTube activity at that time as well. And with that, John, man, thanks for being with us today. Always great to be on, Jack. I appreciate it. Uh, hey, I just want to remind people, get out of debt if they're in debt. That's You can't be free if you're in debt. And uh, the other thing I just want to wrap up, too, is we talk about wealth. Wealth really isn't about money. It's not measured in dollars. It's measured in our relationships. It's measured in the good things we can do. So use your money to establish loving relationships with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your community. That's where you're going to get your true happiness. It's not going to come from money. John, real quick before we leave, if folks who want to know more about working with you or uh, just learn more from you, you have a website they can visit, correct? Yeah, they can, they can visit my website at investablewealth.com, and they can get in touch with me there as well. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with John Pugliano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut